Amen, amen. You guys may be seated this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you guys would be with us on this beautiful Sunday. As a note, uh, as we move into our time of worshiping through the Word, we do have an opportunity to worship through giving as well. If you're led to give, you can see here on the screen a variety of ways you can give, whether it's online, in person, through text, etc. If you feel led to support the mission of Holmes Avenue, this is an opportunity for you to worship and support the Lord, what He's doing here. So thank you for those who give, and for those that are considering giving, thank you for supporting what the Lord is doing here. Now today, we are going into a, perhaps the most controversial question in our series on burning questions. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And as we begin this, this is a challenging question, if we're honest with one another. Simply put, it's a question that many Christians, many people will disagree on. It's one that's full of emotion and frankly is difficult to talk about in our world today. See, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a variety of passages that build out the Bible's view of relationships in a very general sense, and we're going to wrestle with how do we apply God's Word into our lives? What does this mean for us today? I want to be clear about what we're not going to do. We are not going to fire shots against someone who is for living this lifestyle or pursuing a contrary position to us on this topic. We're not going to spend any time condemning people for their viewpoints on this. The Word of God is very clear about who we are and what we do, but we're not going to take target practice at people. You see, my concern here is not to tell the world what to do or how to live, but rather for us to deal with what the Word of God teaches us, to understand what it says we're to be, and then then to wrestle with and apply God's Word consistently and faithfully. You recognize that we live in a world that's confused about these topics, that's confused about this issue in particular. And my prayer is that today we're going to find some clarity on this topic while answering some questions that you might have. As you've seen over the course of this series, you can actually text in questions that we will answer live from the the pulpit, so to speak. Uh, If you'd like to send those messages in, you can send those. The number will be on the screen, but I want to give that to you right now if you're writing it down. 843-259-2484. You'll see that on the screen several times today, but I want you to have that so you feel free to ask questions anonymously. I recognize that there are many things we can talk about and dialogue about, but I want you to know this is a place where you can engage with God's Word together with us. Now, today's going to be a little different in terms of what we're going to be preaching from. So we're going to do a more topical study of the Bible. We're going to bounce between a few passages. I know that's not something we normally do, so bear with us. We're going to look through a few different passages to understand what does God's Word say about relationships, about marriage. All those are directly applicable to this question. And as we're wrestling with this, I thought the first place that we should begin is with, well, the beginning of the Bible. In fact, if you would, if you'll flip over to Genesis, uh, you'll be in Genesis chapter 1 to begin with today, and it's right at the front of your Bible. You can't miss it. If you've hit anything beside Genesis chapter 1, you've gone too far. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'll go ahead and read those for you. As we look at God's Word, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As we begin here, we're starting with the beginning of our story here in Genesis. We're starting a story of creation, of humanity. And as we enter in this story, we find this location where we perhaps are pretty familiar with what's happening here. As you look at this, maybe you're familiar with it. This entire story begins with God uttering these words, let there be light. And creation begins, the world comes into existence. This first chapter in Genesis is written so that we might know who God is and understand what it is that he has done. You see, in this chapter, he's creating our entire universe. Everything we know and see in our world, he's working together to create it. This is a very orderly account going by days, explaining what God has created on each day. You see, this seems to be a very simple task until we get to day six, where things get to be a little bit complicated. As you might imagine, on day six, we have some living creatures that are created. We have this reference to livestock, to creeping things. I imagine that's bugs, and I could have done without that, but they have a role to play, right? We've got livestock, we've got creeping things, other creatures are created, And while these things are mentioned, they're not the focus of the day. Rather, the focus of this day is humanity. See, in verse 26, it tells us that God is creating things, and he says, let us make man. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. See, this section is actually our first look into the Trinity here, where he says, let us make man in our image. This idea of the Trinity, we've talked about it through the New City Catechism, but this is looking at the three persons of God. And simply put, we're not going to linger too much on that for now, but I want you to file that away. This is an important thing within the story of Scripture, right? We can't get but a few verses into the Bible, and we've already encountered this idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's just for reference and for fun. That's free for you today. You file that away, look at it later. Now, the thing that we have to focus on here is this usage of likeness or image. See, this is referring to something that's called the imago Dei, the image of God. Now, what does this mean, right? I can quote Latin to you all day, and that's cute, but what does that actually mean for us? Here's what it means. It's been debated over the centuries. What does this actually come out to bear into our lives? How is this relevant to us? But most theologians kind of sum it down to this, that this imago Dei means that there's some essential quality of man, something about us that is reflective of the glory of God. That is, there's something about our creation, him creating us, that is unique and special, that is reflective of God and his grace. Nothing else reflects it. Now, it's true that this is not necessarily a physical likeness because God does not have a body, as he's made that very clear in the scriptures, but this is a spiritual condition. This is something that sets us apart from everything else in the world. You see, we as human beings, as people created in the image of God, we have a capacity for relationships of community, of love, of intimacy, just like this perfect community of the Trinity. Just as God has never been alone because the Son and the Spirit have been with him for all eternity, we are intended to desire relationship and intimacy in that way. We, because we're a reflection of God, are made to both know others and to be known by others. 
Now, God says here that man is going to take that image-bearing responsibility, and he's going to give dominion to him over the earth. And this isn't crucial for us, but he's saying that man's going to sit at the top of the food pyramid. He's going to be the one who controls everything else. That he's going to exercise authority given to him from God. Well, this passage continues in verse 27, which gives us our first bit of poetry in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, right here, we see him describing him creating Adam and Eve. If you move into chapter 2, you don't have to right now, but I encourage you to keep reading. You get kind of a zoomed-in picture of this day of creation in chapter 2 where he begins to talk about how Adam has walked this earth and he's looking at these animals and there's no one here that is worthy to be a helpmate to him. And God says, this is not right. Let us create woman. It's a beautiful picture of relationship, of intimacy, of being known by one another. Now, this is important to us here because I think it demonstrates to us that God has a very specific plan with creation. He's got a very specific purposeful plan here in creation. You see, he created man and woman in this way, in this method, that this would be an expression for the orthodox, ordinary relationship of humanity. That this was intent from the very beginning of Scripture, that this is how the world is supposed to function. How do we know that? Well, verse 28 tells us that he says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. All you have to do is look at the following verse to recognize that his path forward of seeing the earth filled with his glory was that this ordinary relationship was to move forward and be an example of his glory. See, it tells us that God had every intention of the normal human relationship to be between a man and a woman. Now, why is this important for us? Why does this matter? If we're trying to get a picture for what God wants in his world today, There's no better place to start than the beginning. If we can understand what he intended here at the very beginning, then perhaps we can grasp how we're to live afterwards. God created us with a very specific order in mind for human relationships. As we continue through the Old Testament, we see that he doesn't just abandon this line of thinking. He's got laws and guidelines for how this is to be expressed through the Old Testament. There are dozens of laws in the Old Testament that are addressing the realities of marriage. There are many laws protecting women's rights within marriage. There are many laws that are protecting children within marriage. There are many laws that would bear consequences to men if they were to dishonor their marriage. God is very concerned about this relationship. He further provides laws against things like adultery, lust, murder. He's concerned about how his people live with one another. He gives laws that speak very clearly against homosexual acts and relationships. He gives laws that are contrary to many things that would be popular in our world today. I think we need to be clear about something as we look at this. I want to be very clear about what we're doing here before we move on. As we look at this, we're asking the question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And it's true that the Bible does not speak directly about homosexuality in many places. Yet, what it is clear about is that there is a way to live, a way to honor God, a way that is most in line with his creation. Homosexuality is not the ultimate sin in the world. It's not an unforgivable sin. 
It's one that we as Christians spend a lot of time speaking against. And, and let's be honest, we understand why we speak against so clearly, so loudly. Yet I think that we've got something wrong in the church today because we speak of this sin as something that is unpardonable, that is absolutely, utterly reprehensible. Yet we don't speak out just as strongly against adultery, against lust, against any other sexual sin that you might think of. See, we're inconsistent in how we want to handle things. We're willing to say this sin is worse than anything else over here. The truth is, it's no different than any other sin we can find out there. Is it more visible than some? Yeah. Is it more immoral or wrong than any other sin? No. In God's eyes, in the very definition of sin he's given us, sin is sin. Yes, there are different social consequences that affect each of us. But before the Lord, sin is sin. The truth is, is just as anyone might be able to be forgiven of sin, any sin we can imagine, they can be forgiven of this sin. Furthermore, just as we wouldn't abandon and condemn someone who's trapped in their sin, such as adultery or lust or anything like that, we cannot abandon and condemn people who are struggling with this sin. Truly, at the end of the day, we don't care about the sin that they're pursuing if they're lost. What we care about is the fact that they don't know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, if we're trying to impose our standards of living upon others who are not following Christ, we're imposing righteousness upon them. They cannot follow the Word of God if they don't first know the God that the Word writes about. And the truth is that rather than being concerned about their actions, we should perhaps be concerned about their souls. As we look at the scriptures, Jesus actually tells us that we're to do this in the New Testament. He's very concerned about the souls of his people. He's very concerned about how we live and act and work in relationship with one another. If you'll flip over to Matthew chapter 19, that's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, he speaks a bit about marriage and relationships here. See, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, I'll read it for us. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now as we look at the New Testament, it's often said by people who are proponents of homosexual relationships that Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, that the New Testament doesn't even talk about it. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not quite true, that 
It's true that Jesus did not specifically call out homosexual relationships. However, he spoke against all sexual sin repeatedly, which is what this topic falls underneath. See, he uses this word pornea here through the New Testament. That's where we get our modern word pornography. And and the connotation of that in the New Testament is this. It's a blanket word to cover any sexual sin. And so when Jesus is condemning any sexual sin, he's saying anything outside the bounds of God's word out of his intent is wrong. He's not calling out these specific sins. He's simply saying anything that's not in line with God's word, they're all wrong. I don't care what you come up with. It's wrong if it's not within the boundaries of God's word. Though some would use this perhaps as a point to say that hey, maybe Jesus was in favor of of same-sex relationships. That's not true. We have to understand Jesus' mission very clearly. What was Jesus here to do? What was he speaking out against very directly? You see, he was speaking out about things that the people of Israel got wrong. Every time we see Jesus speaking and teaching, particularly to the people of Israel, what is he doing? He's explaining to them things that they do not understand from the Old Testament. He's showing them where their interpretations have gone astray. The reason Jesus did not speak out against homosexuality is because the people of Israel got that one right. It was not an orthodox thing within Jewish culture. It was not standard within the Israelites to pursue those relationships. See, Jesus didn't speak about this because as far as he was aware, being sovereign and holy and all-knowing, he knew the people of Israel weren't diving into this They were, in fact, just promoting false righteousness and doing whatever they felt like and using God's word as an excuse to do what they felt like. See, we're looking at this passage here because Jesus is speaking, I believe, pretty clearly on marriage and relationships here. You know, a lot of Jesus' teaching, he spends a lot of time and a lot of content addressing relationships between people. Jesus understood something, that if we're reconciled with God, that is, that vertical reconciliation, then we're going to strive to be reconciled with one another. It's like we heard a sermon on that last week, right? If we're reconciled with God, we're going to strive to be reconciled with one another. He's addressing some of these issues that he's seen within those relationships with people. He understands this reality that our relationships, the way we interact with people, that if we have sin in those areas, that will directly affect our relationship with God. Now, one of the issues that he's addressing is marriage and divorce. He's tackling this. Now, his concern here is not that marriage is happening, that divorce is happening, rather. He's not necessarily concerned about this idea of divorce, but rather he's concerned about it happening in a way that is out of bounds within Scripture. You see, Scripture would suggest to us that there are some certain appropriate times for divorce. There are certain moral reasons that promote that. If there's adultery, if there's abuse, things of that nature, there are boundaries for divorce within Scripture. What Jesus is concerned about is that the problem the people of Israel have is that they're pursuing divorce for any reason they can imagine. That the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that when a man comes to them and asks for a divorce, they are just simply rubber stamping it saying, of course. They're making up reasons. they're, They're leaving their women in distress because they simply want something else, something new. 
And Jesus is saying, the problem here isn't necessarily that divorce is happening. The problem is, is you're not following God's word by honoring one another and striving to this. That if one of you breaks that covenant, sure, conversation. If one of you just decides they've got to shorten the stick, well, that's not a good, that's not a good reason for divorce. And so Jesus speaks very clearly about this. He recognizes that the standard set by God has been artificially lowered by man. Now, the key here is that Jesus isn't really directly addressing the topic of divorce, but rather he's talking about marriage and relationships. He's addressing the reality that people have not lived in a way that is according to God's word. They've said, if God's word says X, we're okay with X minus Y. They've lowered the bar. And Jesus is concerned about that. Because he's saying, if indeed we're going to follow God, if indeed we're going to live in righteousness, we must obey his every command, not just the ones that we feel like obeying. It's true that Jesus is not speaking directly on homosexuality here, but he's speaking against all the things that the people of Israel have gotten gotten wrong. You see, the people of Israel, they have found affirmation in God's word revolving around this orthodox, ordinary view of marriage. Jesus wasn't spending any time addressing this in particular because he didn't have to. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that Israel had a lot bigger problems than this. This also shows us that Jesus himself affirmed this orthodox position of sexuality. See, when he talks about sexuality, when he talks about marriage or relationships, he does so from this perspective that we are affirming. He is saying that this is the way it's supposed to work. Man, woman, done. This is the relationship that he's expressing. See, he's not a silent supporter of same-sex relationships or anything. He's simply speaking on the topics that are at hand that are here for him to deal with. As we've looked at these passages here today, I, I think that we've seen that God cares deeply about our relationships. He cares deeply about our relationships with one another and with him. If we're being honest with one another, we would recognize that we're all dealing with various sins and struggles in our relationships with others, and frankly, we're longing for answers. That perhaps you're not here struggling with same-sex attraction. Maybe you're struggling with lust. Maybe you're struggling with anger. Maybe you're not being the best spouse that you could be. Whatever your struggles are, we would all confess that we want things to be right. We simply want things to work together the way they're supposed to work. We want to be free of sin. We want to be free of our struggles in all of these areas. We want things to be right. The Bible, Jesus, it pushes this idea upon us that a deep relationship A deep relationship is one that is going to be found between people who are truly known. There's a deep intimacy, a deep knowledge of one another that comes from this type of relationship. See, there's to be real relationship between us that encourages us, but is also compelling to the world around us. You see, here in the Bible, what Jesus is pushing in terms of real relationship between his people is that there's freedom to be found in our relationships if we live within the boundaries that God's Word has given us. 
God's boundaries are established for us, not to constrain us from experiencing all that life has to offer, but rather to ensure that we receive all that life has to offer us. These boundaries have been placed upon us for good and for his glory. You see, this type of freedom that we're longing for, that we're seeking, this only comes when we know who we are. This only comes when we understand who we belong to. Our story of freedom doesn't begin with whatever date we say we've liberated ourselves from shackles or bondage to some lifestyle, whatever it might be. No, our freedom begins when we confront the cost of our sin. You see, our freedom begins when we look upon the cross and we recognize that our sin required Jesus to die in our place so that we might have life eternal, so that we might have forgiveness in this life. You see, freedom, ironically enough, comes not by taking our lives in our hands, but rather by laying them down at the foot of the cross. Real freedom comes by giving up of ourselves. As you're here today, perhaps you're longing for some type of freedom. Maybe it's from a sin. Maybe it's from some difficult relationship. Maybe it's from something else. I don't pretend to know everything you're wrestling with and dealing with. What I do know is that every single one of us desires some type of freedom. We desire to be set free from the things that ail us, that confront us, that cause us difficulty. And try as we might, we grab these things and we try to hold on and white-knuckle our way through life like we can make it work. When the truth is, the only way we can find freedom is by giving it up, by putting it all down before Jesus and saying, it's yours, Lord. You're the only one who can resolve this. If you're here looking for freedom, the only place to find this freedom is through Jesus. Today, as we wrap up our time in a few minutes, we're going to go through a few questions here. But as we wrap up our time today, you have opportunity to find that freedom. You have opportunity to experience freedom in Christ by laying your life down before the Lord. Is my hope, my prayer that you would look upon your life and find there's freedom in Jesus. As we consider where to go from here, we've got to deal with some questions, right? I hope that you have been sending some questions in. Um, I actually don't know. They're back here on the screen, so we're going to see what happens. So as we jump in, we've got to give you a few questions that we've received over the last few days. So one of the questions that we've gotten most commonly is, can I go to a same-sex marriage ceremony? Real question, right? Is it okay to go to one? Is it appropriate to pursue that type of engagement? Well, you maybe want a hard and fast answer of yes or no. And unfortunately, I can't really give you that. The answer is maybe, maybe not. This is ultimately going to depend upon the relationship you have with someone and your personal preferences here. Now, for me, I would say that I would probably not go to that because I'd be, in my own position, I'm uncomfortable with being in a place of maybe affirming that type of relationship. I'd have some real hesitations about going. That's, that's me speaking. There's not a scripture passage that says, yes or no, you can go. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Boston and got to meet some Jesus-loving, God-honoring pastors up there. And this topic came up with some of them. And one of them very clearly said that, yeah, I'd go, I'd go. 
and listening to him, asking why would he feel this way, his response was simply, look, my wife and I, we're best friends with a couple in a same-sex relationship. If they ever pursue marriage, we're going to go because they're our friends. This is a part of that relationship we have with them. This is an opportunity we feel we have to share the gospel with them. Now, whether you feel that way or not, I'm not going to tell you what to do there. I would simply say that you need to use your own wisdom and discernment there. And then also, let's just be honest with one another. If you've got a good enough relationship to be invited to someone's wedding, you've got a good enough relationship with them to talk to them about why you will or will not go, okay? If we're just being honest there. Simply put, I think that's left up to individual discretion with the individual believer. If you feel comfortable going, great. If you don't feel comfortable going, don't go. Another question that we've received is, is it a sin if someone is born with homosexual desires? Is it a sin if someone is born with homosexual desires? Well, I think we need to be clear here as we look at what we have in science, as we look at what we know about the world. First and foremost, we recognize that sin has absolutely broken and corrupted all of humanity. We're broken, in case you didn't know. Um, I, I think you probably watch news and you recognize that we're not right. And is it possible that sin has absolutely broken and corrupted the world so much that maybe we're born with some genetic abnormalities that give us perhaps proclivity towards these things, a desire towards things like this? Maybe. It's possible. There's not any scientific evidence that would indicate that there is a, a, a gene that gives proclivity towards that. We do know there are some genetic issues that people do have that make them more prone to things like alcoholism and other areas. That is true. We have no evidence that there's anything that works this way for sexual desires. Now, even as we say that, I don't think that's the right question. I don't think that's the right question. Even if the world is so broken that we might be born with these types of desires or proclivities towards these things, what does that change? I mean, seriously, what does that change? Just because someone is born with a desire, a weakness towards alcoholism, does that mean they are condemned as an alcoholic? No. There's still the ability to choose and make choices. There's still an ability to make choices and then live with the consequences. Simply put, is it a sin if someone's born with a proclivity towards that? Yes, it'd still be a sin because they are still making a conscious choice to pursue these things. Is it harder for them perhaps? Absolutely. Just as those who in our family struggle with things like alcoholism and other things, things will be harder for them. But I believe that Paul tells us that the grace of God is greater than any sin that we might encounter in this world. Simply put, God's standards are still true. Who are we to ignore them and try to change them? I'm not seeing anything else. I want to jump into one last question that I think is helpful and relevant for us. And this question is, how do I counsel someone who tells me that they are now pursuing this lifestyle? How do I counsel someone who, as a vernacular goes, comes out to me? I want to be clear that I'm not offering some specific steps here, but some principles there. If you want to get some nitty-gritty stuff, Focus on the Family has some great resources for this topic. But I want to be clear that we're not dealing with this particular sin here in this moment. We're addressing this relationship. 
Now, here's the key. We said earlier that if they are not trusting in Jesus, then for us to impose these artificial righteousness upon them is just that. We're putting righteousness upon them. At the end of the day, the question isn't, how do we get them out of this lifestyle? The question is, how do we see God save their soul? Because here's what I know. At the end of the day, that if they are right with the Lord, the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. I don't know about you, but I've never in my life taken the Holy Spirit's role in convicting someone of their sin. Try as I might sometimes, I've never been good at it. Why? Because that's God's job, not mine. My job is to speak the truth of the gospel to people, to share the good news of Jesus, and pray that the Lord in his might, power, and majesty would transform their heart from a sinful human into a new creation of God. So should someone express that they are pursuing this lifestyle, my encouragement for you is to talk about the gospel. It's to share the word of God, the hope that is found in Jesus. Because if they're not a believer, then you're trying to put a Band-Aid upon cancer. What needs to be fixed? They don't need a Band-Aid. They need surgery. What needs to be fixed is they are a broken sinner who's in need of a Savior. You and I can't do that. And simply put, what our answer should be in that situation is to share the good news of Jesus. To proclaim the gospel clearly, boldly, and pray that the Lord would move and work as perhaps we've never seen him work before. Now, on the other hand, if they are a believer and they say they're pursuing this, and you've got ample opportunity to speak the truth in love and to encourage them to study the scriptures, to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to trust in God's inerrant, infallible, perfect word, and to abide by his standards. The key here is ultimately relationship. Who are they? What is their relationship with the Lord? They're a believer. Speak the truth in love very clearly about what the Lord expects. If they're not a believer, then speak the truth and love about what the Lord is doing in their life and what he's done in yours. See no other questions. I want to take a moment and conclude our time together by praying and rejoicing in the grace of God. I recognize that this is a challenging topic, but simply put, the Bible is very clear about what the Lord expects in his world, about what he expects from us as believers. And as we trust and walk with him, we're going to encounter real conversations, real applications of this. My hope and my prayer is that through the reading of the scriptures, through the study of God's word, you would be equipped to share the good news of Jesus Christ. As we study today, I don't want you to lose sight of these realities that as we're looking at these things, we're dealing with people who are lost in their sin. People who are just like us, before we encountered Christ. It is once said that as we look at lostness, we should go there, but the grace of God go I. We would be in the exact same shoes, trapped in sin and shame, were it not for the grace of God. And so the answer that we offer to questions like this is that Jesus is greater than any sin and that you can find forgiveness for any sin at the cross. That's the freedom that is offered to you today. That's the freedom that I've received and that I pray that you would receive. If you would, would you go to Lord in prayer with me? Father, thank you for being such a good, gracious God. Thank you for showing us how we're to live, 
showing us how the world is supposed to function. Lord, we recognize that we live in a broken world, one that's trapped in sin and shame, one that is not working the way you intended it to work. But even in the midst of that, Lord, we have hope because you are not a God who is silent. You're not a God who has abandoned us. You're not a God who is not working in this world. No, you are at work transforming the hearts and minds of people in this world. As we study questions like this, we recognize that as Christians, we do understand how we're to live. We do understand what your word says, Lord. The questions, the struggles we have is how do we share this message, the hope we have. Father, simply put, everything we do, every question we're answering, every bit of scripture we're looking at is intended to show us your beautiful story of creating your people, of us falling away in our sin and you pursuing us for redemption and reconciliation that you have come to make things right in this world. That today you're making things right in the hearts and minds of people. And one day you'll make all things right when you return and inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we rejoice in the hope that we have that you are here and can transform hearts and minds. Lord, this is our message. This is what we have to put before us, that Jesus is greater and that he is good. Let us proclaim this gospel message of hope, of redemption, of reconciliation that we have found so that every man, woman, and child we encounter might see, hear, and respond to your great name, Lord. Father, we are thankful for all the things that you've done for us in this world. And we pray that you bless us in this time. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.